Chapter 47 The Mapmaker It was a cloudy, sultry afternoon. The seamen were lazily lounging about the decks, or vacantly gazing over the lead-colored waters. Quigquake and I were mildly employed, weaving what is called a sword mat, or an additional lashing to our boat. So still and subdued and yet somehow preluding was all the scene, and such an incantation of reverie lurked in the air that each silent sailor seemed resolved into his own invisible self. I was the attendant or page of Quigquig, while busy at the mat, as I kept passing and repassing the filling of woof or marlin between the long yards of the warp, using my own hands for the shuttle, and as Quigquag, standing sideways ever anon, slid his heavy oaken sword between the threads and idly looking off upon the water, carelessly and unthinkingly drove home every yarn. I say so strange a dreaminess did there all reign over all the ship and over all the sea, only broken by the intermitting dull sound of the sword, that it seemed as if there were a loom of time, and I myself were a shuttle mechanically weaving and weaving away at the fates. There lay the fixed threads of the warped subject to but one single, ever-returning, unchanging vibration, and the vibration merely enough to admit of the crosswise interblending of other threads with its own. This warp seemed necessity, and here, thought I, with my own hand I ply my own shuttle and weave my own destiny into these unalterable threads. Meantime, Quigquag's impulsive, indifferent sword, sometimes hitting the woof slantingly, or crookedly, or strongly, or weakly, as the case might be, and by this difference in his concluding blow, producing a corresponding contrast in the final aspect of the completed fabric. This savage's sword, thought I, which thus finally shaped in fashions both warp and woof, this easy, indifferent sword must be chance, I chance, free will, and necessity, no wise compatible, all interweaving, working together. The straight warp of necessity, not to be swerved from its ultimate course, its every alternating vibration, indeed, only tending to that, free will, still free to ply her shuttle between given threads, and chance, though restrained in its play within the right lines of necessity, and sideways in its motions, detected by free will, though thus prescribed to by both, chance by turns rules either, and has the last featuring blow at events. Thus we were weaving and weaving away, when I started at a sound so strange, long-drawn and musically wild and unearthly, that the ball of free will dropped from my hand, and I stood gazing up at the clouds, whence that voice dropped like a wing. High aloft in the cross-trees was the mad, gay header Tashtego. His body was reaching eagerly forward, his hand stretched out like a wand, and at brief, sudden intervals he continued his cries. To be sure, the same sound was that very moment perhaps being heard all over the seas from hundreds of whalemen's lookouts, perched as high in the air, and from few of those lungs could that accustomed old cry have derived such a marvelous cadence from Tashtego the Indians. As he stood hovering over you half suspended in air, so wildly and eagerly peering toward the horizon, you would have thought him some prophet or seer beholding the shadows of fate, and whose cries among announcing their coming. There she blows, there, 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 she blows, she blows. Where away? On the lee beam, about two miles off, a school of them. Instantly all was commotion. The sperm whale blows as a clock ticks with the same undeviating and reliable uniformity, and thereby whalemen distinguished this fish from other tribes of genus. There goes Flukes, 
was now the cry from Tashtego, and the whales disappeared. Quick, steward, cried Ahab. Time, time! Doughboy hurried below, glancing at the watch, and reported the exact minute to Ahab. The ship was now kept away from the wind, and she went gently rolling before it. Tashtego reporting that the whales had gone down heading to leeward, we confidently looked to see them again directly in advance of our bows. For that singular craft at times evinced by the sperm whale when, sounding with his head in one direction, he nevertheless, while concealed beneath the surface, mills around and swiftly swims off in the opposite quarter. This deceitfulness of his could not now be in action, for there was no reason to suppose that the fish seen by Tashtego had been in any way alarmed, or indeed knew at all of our vicinity. One of the men selected for shipkeepers, that is, who's not appointed to the boats, by this time relieved the Indian at the mainmast head. The sailor at the fore and mizzen had come down, and the line tubs were fixed in their places. The cranes were thrust out, the mainyards were backed, and the three boats swung over the sea like samphire baskets over high cliffs. Outside of the bulwarks, their eager crews with one hand clung to the rail, while the other foot was expectantly poised on the gunwale. So looked the long line of man-of-war's men about to throw themselves on board an enemy ship. But this critical instant, a sudden exclamation was heard that took every eye from the whale. With a start, all glared at Ahab, who was surrounded by five dusky phantoms that seemed fresh formed out of the air. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.